Good afternoon. It's one o'clock. I'm Scott Monick in downtown London. A mix of sun and cloud and 21 degrees. No injuries are being reported following a house fire in West London. Fire crews responded to 69 Harston Road near Hyde Park and Riverside Drive just after 11 o'clock this morning. Platoon Chief Colin Shewell tells 980 CFPL the fire was contained to the basement of the home. Definitely heavy smoke conditions. Uh, uh, they did find the fire down uh, in the first room area. We're able to extinguish the fire and commence with ventilation. Uh, good news is uh, no injuries to the, uh, the owner or the individuals that were uh, at home at the time or the, any firefighters on scene. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. A damage estimate has not been provided. The province's police watchdog has invoked its mandate after a male suspect reported an injury following an arrest in East London. Details are limited, but police say the two officers were investigating an assault at around 9.45 last night when a man fled from the scene west across Highbury Ave. He was located a short distance away and was arrested. At police headquarters, the man told staff of his injury. He was taken to hospital and was found to have an unspecified injury. The Special Investigations Unit was then notified. The suspect, a 45-year-old man, faces two counts of assault, mischief under uh, $5,000 and resisting arrest. Meantime, police say they anticipate being able to share more information later in the day, but say they're investigating what appears to be a dormant drug lab. Police and other emergency personnel say they discovered the location of a home on Hamilton Road yesterday afternoon at around 3 o'clock. They say they were quickly able to determine that there wasn't a threat to public safety. They say they're still in the process of executing a search warrant in connection with the case. Stay with us for the latest on this developing story. Investigators hope someone will recognize a robbery suspect and contact them. Officers say a pharmacy in the area of Huron and Adelaide was held up by a man at around 11.20 in the morning on Sunday, May 26. The suspect allegedly told the pharmacist he had a gun, but it was never seen. Police say the man fled the area with prescription medication and no one was hurt during the incident. His picture is now posted on our website, 980cfpl.ca. Facebook is launching a new feature to help with blood donations. Summer is a time when people are off, vacations are on, and the need for blood donation goes up. Now Facebook is hoping to bridge the gap when blood supplies dip. It's estimated every two seconds someone in the U.S. will need blood. The social media network's new feature will alert users when blood banks in their areas are running low. You sign up for the feature in your profile about section. The alert will be available in major cities, including New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, and it will expand nationwide in the coming months. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. And the Boston Bruins are hoping for a repeat of 2011 tonight. The Bruins play host to the St. Louis Blues in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. Blues head coach Craig Berube says he has come to admire his team's character as they battle for their first ever championship. You know, my first time coaching this group uh, in the playoffs, just the, re- the resiliency and relentlessness of the team. Like, man, these guys never quit. And, um, they, you know, the belief that they have in the locker room you know, it was unbelievable. Back in 2011, the Bruins beat the Vancouver Canucks in Game 7 to capture the Stanley Cup. 980 CFPL Newstime is 103. Coming up next, it's London Live. You're listening to 980 CFPL. What a day that looks like. I haven't looked out the window in a while. You looked out the window? Look out the window. It's nice. All right, now that we have that covered, boy, do we have a lot of things to get to on the show today. Some great guests coming in. 
Imagine you could live anywhere in the world. Anywhere. Doesn't matter. You can pick any spot. Where would you go? Well, we're going to talk with somebody who had that in front of them and made the call. And I'm not going to give away where they picked. But if you live in the area, you should only get one guess. So we're going to talk about that. We are also going to look ahead to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, which comes up tonight. This doesn't happen very often. This will be the 17th time. Home team has won it 12 times. A guy who won it the last time the Stanley Cup Final went to a Game 7. He was a member of the Boston Bruins at the time. They were in Vancouver. He's going to join us in just over a half an hour, and we'll talk about what that day was like. How do you sleep? How do you eat? What does it feel like? And he's also going to tell a story about the Boston Bruins winning the Stanley Cup in Vancouver. If you think back to 2011, uh, it wasn't the cleanest finish to the Vancouver Canucks fan season. Boy, fans have been this big topic of conversation in so many ways over the last little while. What with the Raptors and Kevin Durant, I guess maybe sports behavior. Yesterday, Team USA at the Women's World Cup of Soccer decided to go through some dramatic celebrations, elaborate celebrations toward the end of their match against Thailand that they were winning 13-0. Actually, let's say they were winning 10-0, 11-0 because they celebrated those goals probably a little bit more than they should have. So a little later on in the show, we'll talk about sports behavior or maybe behavior in life. We might even be able to tie in what happened last night with Jake Skinner to all of that. We'll see. That comes up later on in the show. We're also going to talk about a way that Canada is reaching for the stars, the actual stars. But we want to begin things by going over an announcement that is going to have an effect. I'm not sure what kind of effect. We need maybe some legal expertise to figure out what kind of effect. But if we go back to the unveiling of the Ontario budget by the Ford government, we heard at that time that there was going to be a cut to legal aid support. And now we have Legal Aid Ontario that has announced they're going to cut more than a third of the Canadian Environmental Law Association's budget. So the Canadian Environmental Law Association is one of six, they're called specialty clinics within Legal Aid Ontario. And this means that it's going to be very difficult for those who cannot afford to pay for a lawyer or legal fees. And that's something that kind of, in my mind, could compromise the legal system. Do you not feel? Right now, you have the right to an attorney. That's read to you if you get into a heap of trouble. You have the right to that. Well, what if you don't have the budget from your province to give you the right to that? I imagine a lawyer still has to be appointed somehow, right? How is this all going to work? And what exactly is going to be saved? Well, not sure overall what's going to be saved, but 
if we look at the organization itself, Legal Aid Ontario, they have gone through all kinds of hoops and over hurdles, and they have found about $75 million in savings for this year. And what that has done is it's given them a, a little breathing room. But in doing so, again, we're looking at budgetary cuts that will have an impact on vulnerable people. And that's what it has to come down to. Because remember, we're not just talking about criminals here. This is not when someone goes to trial. This is not after someone has been convicted. This is someone in the very earliest stages of everything who would not be able to afford legal representation, who gets appointed legal representation. So we want to dig into this a little bit more, and that's what we're going to do to kick off the show in just a moment. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We knew that budget cuts were coming to legal aid. That was laid out in the Ontario budget. Now we've seen Legal Aid Ontario cut more than a third of the Canadian Environmental Law Association's budget. So how much does that take it in one direction in particular? And what exactly does this mean? It's way over my head. So when that kind of stuff happens, we like to seek out someone who knows a whole lot more. Gord Cudmore is a defense lawyer here in the city of London and joins us. Gord, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. Okay, let, let's go back to the initial announcement, just to rewind time completely. When it was announced that there would be budget cuts to Legal Aid at that point, and Legal Aid Ontario then had to decide how they were going to deal with those budget cuts, what was the talk among the legal community? We weren't surprised. Here we go again, uh, that uh, everybody has the right to counsel, everybody has the right to be defended, represented. Uh, in usually matrimonial or criminal uh, offenses. Uh, and, of course, uh, the government is saying uh, financially, no, we're not going to do that anymore. I mean, the cutbacks uh, even prior to this were horrific, where uh, many people who needed a lawyer were being denied any legal aid to uh, help at all to get a lawyer. Really? So, oh, yeah. It's, you'd be amazed the number of unrepresented people <clears throat> excuse me, in our courts today. In, in criminal court, I'm not sure what the percentage is, but it's up there where people have to represent themselves. And in family court, I'd be willing to bet it's more than half the people who are in family court are representing themselves. And this has already been happening? Yep. And it's just going to be more so. Okay. And what tends to happen for a person like that? How do they even get into that situation, I guess, is, is a better question. Well, the uh, w when you're charged with the offense, if you can't afford a lawyer, you go to legal aid, and legal aid looks at your finances uh, and determines whether or not you can afford a lawyer. Uh, and basically, if you're making a slightly below the poverty line, they think you can afford a lawyer. Uh, and then also, it's depending on uh, what the Crown is seeking. In other words, if it's <clears throat> not likely that if you're convicted, you'll go to jail, then you won't get legal aid. Of course, you get a criminal record, you may get probation, you may get all sorts of things. But uh, unless you're at some risk of going to jail, you're not going to get legal aid. So that's why a lot of people who may well have a defense uh, to their case just don't have the resources to hire a lawyer. 
and then they they still have to show up for their court date. How does that even play out? They're they're representing themselves. And and one of the things it does, it creates further backlogs because they they don't know what they're doing, and I'm not saying that in any pejorative way, uh, so that it takes longer to uh, deal with them because they don't know the, the process. If they do their own trial, the trial takes a lot longer than it would if a lawyer was acting. Uh, the judge is obliged to try and give them some assistance without siding with them necessarily. Uh, and it, uh, it it affects the system as a whole, not just the individual rights that are being taken away from, uh, from people who can't uh, afford a lawyer. We're talking with defense lawyer Gord Cudmore, and we're discussing what was in the budget already and what Gord tells us has been happening in certain instances for some time now, and that is legal aid and cuts to legal aid. Legal Aid Ontario has now come out, and Gord, they've said that they've made some budget cuts. They've, they've slashed more than a third of the Canadian Environmental Law Association's budget. So where would the Canadian Environmental Law Association fall into the courts? Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure uh, about that, uh, Mike, so I'd, I'd be speculating okay. uh, on that. And as you say, you'd, when I don't know the answer, I'd like to get someone else who does. <laughs> well, um, then, but, but if the we... One thing I would tell you is, for those who are wondering, legal aid is not a get-rich-quick scheme for lawyers. Uh, the rates are very low uh, that lawyers are uh, allowed to charge. And also, uh, when you get a legal aid certificate, the lawyer is limited to the number of hours he or she can spend on the case uh, so that uh, you're, you're given budgets, and the budgets are very restrictive. Now, in, in, having, in having that system in place... Would would the legal community be looking at that and saying, "Hey, there were there were changes to make to this, but they were different kinds of changes." Would the legal community want to look at making changes to that existing system to make it work better, or or does it work to about the best of its ability? Well, it it needs money, uh, is what it needs uh, to work, uh, and the uh, there's not the political will to to fund uh, legal aid. I mean, because a lot of people look at it, well, we're just uh, paying for lawyers to defend criminals, which is, you know, not the case. Uh, so that uh, you don't get a lot of political, <clears throat> excuse me, sympathy uh, for the legal aid uh, system. In fact, some people just get upset with it when uh, uh, lawyers are paid by legal aid to defend people who uh, some of the members of the public think uh, shouldn't be getting a defense. Well... In this instance, if we look at, at, I guess, how it could play out, would we see maybe more people willing to accept uh, a different arrangement as opposed to going to a trial? Would they, would they be presented with that, and that, that would be an option for them? Well, the, the problem is with different arrangements, you get into plea bargaining, and uh, you get people who are pleading to stuff, in other words, the, the Crown Attorney says, look, uh, I won't ask for jail. I'll just ask for probation or a fine if you plead guilty, uh, which assumes you're guilty. You may not be guilty, but it may be the most expedient way of, of dealing with it. And there are a lot of people uh, in our system now, especially at the at the lower end, who end up pleading guilty to things they're not guilty of uh, in order to get uh, get it over with, which I think is, is uh, outrageous. 
And would there be an effect on on the courts here? Could without all of the uh, the added legal aid defense, could we see, as you say, even more time taken because people don't know the correct process, that sort of thing? Could would that be a, a legitimate concern? Oh, absolutely. There's uh, more and more court time going to be taken up with people who can't afford or who are representing themselves. I mean, it's it's going to spiral uh, some more. And, and I think what might end up happening at some point is we'll go to the American uh, system, uh, which is a public defender, where they're just assigned. And so what you do is you get young, inexperienced lawyers who are totally overworked and underpaid uh, to defend uh, more than the normal caseload. Uh and uh, somehow call that justice. All of a sudden, visions of the old sitcom Night Court are filling yep. our heads. I mean, that's what it is, where you have one lawyer on one side, one on the other, one's the defendant, one is the prosecutor. They roll in, they pick up a piece of paper and say, okay, you did this, you did this, you did yep. this. Uh, here's your side, and then here's the other side, and the judge rules. That's right. We'll get into, we'll get into that uh, just to get through. I mean, uh, justice system is not... Uh, by definition, efficient, uh, and it's not inexpensive. Uh, and what you do is, when you start looking for more efficiencies and less expense, what is sacrificed is uh, justice. Gord, can't thank you enough for helping us to understand this a little bit more. Have a great day. Always, always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. Bye. That's Gord Cudmore, London defense lawyer. So, Cuts to legal aid. I mean, right now, a lot of the focus is, of course, on the announcement that it it is a certain part of Legal Aid Ontario, and it is the Canadian Environmental Law Association, which we see a a big cut to. They're facing a 37% cut over two years, but you also have the Advocacy Center for Tenants. You have the Security Advocacy Center. So Legal Aid Ontario, again, has gone through everything just as you would. Let's say that you have to change jobs, and you're now making fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year less. What are you going to do? You're going to look at your budget and say, you know, we don't really need this or we could get by with a little bit less of this. And that's what you have to do. You have to cut back and say, okay, does everything match now? What's coming in matches what needs to go out. And that's what Legal Aid Ontario is attempting to do because they've been told by the government, yeah, you don't get this much. Then, when the trickle-down effect happens, as Gord Cutmore pointed out, one, you have people who do not get representation because they will apply for it. It will be ruled, no, you're not eligible for this. And he said even people who are slightly below the poverty line wind up with that. So, no, you don't get legal aid. They wind up representing themselves. That takes more court time. Everything's very inefficient. So you have that aspect of it. You could have people accepting plea bargains. I don't know if you've heard much about the documentary series that looks at the Central Park Five. This is a story that takes you even back to the days of Night Court. I think it might even be following Night Court. This was early 90s by the time it was all playing out. And the Central Park Five, I don't want to give too much away, but again, it's a documentary series And it's out there right now, and I'm not going to play spoiler, but essentially you've got a group of young teenagers. I mean, some who weren't even teenagers, a big group of them who happened to be in Central Park one night. How did they all get there? I'm not even sure. All of those teenagers were black. 
And they're in Central Park in New York on the same night that a rape takes place. And there had been some other stuff. They were they were little kids. They were running around. They were they were doing stuff. There was an allegation of somebody getting beaten up. Uh, there, I think there was a vandalism incident. And so the police get word of these people running around, and all of a sudden, it's discovered that a woman has been beaten and raped at the same time. And the police tie things together. And the way that things begin makes you think, hey. Plea bargains? Yeah. Not always what you would want them to be. In other words, hey, if you want to protect yourself. So let's say that you're walking down the street and all of a sudden a police vehicle pulls up and says, hi, uh, we need to talk to you. You're being charged with this offense and you know full well you haven't done it. And then you get to the police station. And you are given a couple of options. You are told some things. You are told, okay, with these charges that you are facing, and I'm going to TV dramatize it a little bit. I've never been in this situation. I don't know if this is what, this is what happens, but let's, let's kind of look at a plea bargain. You are charged with this. It could lead you to this, and that's really bad. That's a long time in jail. Or you could plead to this, which is less time in jail. So you roll the dice. Well, I hope I get off because I know I didn't do this, but what if things went wrong? Uh, Maybe I'll just take this plea bargain and spend six months in jail and just pretend none of this ever happened when I get out. That's the kind of thing that you could be facing in this instance on what could be a more consistent basis. And that's not what you want either. Again, that's not how it works. Or do you want to go to the, the people's court? Night court. Okay, next up on the docket, case 15063, the people versus Michael Stubbs. And here's what we think you've done, and you plead your case, and Harry behind the bench, who may or may not have been wearing pants under his robe, that was that was one of those gags of the old sitcom night court. Yeah, Harry didn't always wear pants under his robe. Give me a break. We don't want that system, do we? And you're looking at the vulnerable sector of the population. So why is this being done? It's being done because this is being done everywhere in the province. And again, we've discussed this on London Live. The jury's still out on the Doug Ford government and how they're handling everything. But we are seeing cuts. And what? Once a week, twice a week, we wind up doing stories like this where this has been cut back from here. They're trying to figure out how to do everything with less money. And in the end, we're going to be able to take that little bit and this little bit and the little bit from over here, and we're going to make a great big ball of savings that may get this province into a much better financial position. And you can go back and you can blame Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals, and you can blame Dalton McGinty and the Liberals. A lot of people will even go back as far as Bob Ray and the NDP. They'll blame them. Blame whatever government you want. This accumulates over time. Not everybody has done their job of being fiscally responsible. doesn't happen in government. Fiscal responsibility, transparency, those are things that are thrown around. Once you get in there, it just doesn't happen. And if we could figure out a way for it to happen, we would have. It would be different by now, but it's not. So in the end, the Doug Ford government is going to have this 
different financial setting the way that they are going. And we may look back on that and say, you know what, that was a really positive move. Or we may look back on it and say, okay, now we're back on track. Now we do start to give money back to legal aid. We do start to give money back to the teaching profession. We do start to give money back to healthcare. We do do this in different ways. But until that time, we got to, you know, roll up our sleeves and get our noses dirty and all those cliches. So maybe that happens. Or maybe we look and say, yeah, the Doug Ford government, boy, we were screwed up financially. Now we're screwed up everywhere. I don't know. We've got to wait for that to all play out. But this is the latest in a little story saying, here's some cuts for you. How are you going to handle it? And it's legal aid. And again, people in a very vulnerable sector of our communities who are being affected the most. We'll take a break. Chris Kelly won a Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins in 2011. He comes up after news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. In a little over 30 minutes... We're going to talk to somebody who was able to ask the question, where do you want to live? He asked it of his wife, of his kids, where do you want to live? They were living in Brazil, I'll tell you that much. And he has a job, still has it, that allows him to live anywhere in the world. I'm sure they could make accommodations if he wanted to live in Antarctica. I want to live with the penguins. Okay, we can get that for you. We'll create you a hut. You must love the cold weather anywhere in the world. And so he and his family started to narrow this down. And I don't want to give away too much, but he's traveled all over the world. So he had it narrowed down almost immediately to Canada. And from Canada, he narrowed it down to Ontario. And from Ontario... He kept on narrowing it down. Not going to give away where he chose. But again, if you live in London, you should only be given one guess. So we're going to hear that particular story, and we're going to talk about Cirque du Soleil, because traveling the world, that's how he does it. He is a member of Cirque du Soleil. They actually have shows opening tomorrow at Budweiser Gardens. So lots on Cirque and lots on that particular journey. And... I don't know if there's a way that we can get Tourism London to create a campaign and say, hey, you want to know what London is like? Because let's face it, we do a better job than we ever have as Canadians tooting our own horn about Canada. We do a better job as Londoners tooting our own horns about London and the surrounding area, but this one, this one's a little bit different. This, this takes it to a whole new level. We know what exists in southwestern Ontario. We know what exists in London, Ontario. If you could say anywhere in the world and it becomes London, Ontario, what does that do for tourism? What does that do for wanting to live here? Maybe we're seeing it because look at the numbers in real estate. We've got all kinds of people retiring, selling their houses in Toronto and other locations, and this is where they find themselves winding up. And that's led to a pretty difficult situation in real estate. Some would say it's great because their property values have increased, but we have seen this area catch up to some other areas when for a long time we've been lagging behind. So that story's coming. We are going to get a chance to talk with someone who almost eight years ago to the day 
won the Stanley Cup. That comes up next, but this has a little bit more to it. Tonight, the Boston Bruins play the St. Louis Blues. It is Game 7, guaranteed that the Stanley Cup is awarded tonight. The last time that happened was eight years ago. And our next guest was on the team that won the Stanley Cup. He'll take us back to that day, take us through the game, the celebration, and a few other things when we return on London Live. Chris Kelly, former London Knight, former Ottawa Senator, former Boston Bruin, and also a guy who played for Team Canada at the Olympics recently. That's one thing we probably won't get to. I don't think we'll have time. He's next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Getting to the top of your profession is one thing. In hockey, it's called playing in the National Hockey League. Being the best of the best in that top profession, that's not easy. A lot of people have played a lot of games in the National Hockey League and have never won the Stanley Cup. Tonight, a few people are going to win it. And they're either members of the St. Louis Blues or members of the Boston Bruins. If you look at connections to the area, we're talking about how great this area is. Have you seen the connections on the two sides? On the St. Louis Blues, you have the Director of Player Development, Tim Taylor, former London Knight. You have Mike Van Ryan, who is an assistant coach, Londoner. You have Ryan O'Reilly, leading scorer on the Blues. He's from, it gets stated in a number of ways, uh, he's from Seaforth, he's from Varna, sometimes they call it Clinton. Um I don't know whether he lived in all three of those spots growing up. Can we say Ryan O'Reilly of Huron County? And then you've got Robert Thomas, who apparently won't play tonight because of injury, Patrick Maroon, and Michael Del Zotto, who were all on the London Knights roster. So those are six connections to the Blues if you're looking for somebody to cheer for. On the Boston Bruins side, you have to dig. But you'll find Jake DeBrusque, who is the son of Louis DeBrusque, who is one of the most popular London Knights players of all time. So take your pick. It's one of those two teams, and they will win. The last time this happened, the last time there was a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final, happened to be 2011, and the Boston Bruins were playing in it. They were playing in Vancouver, and Chris Kelly, another former London Knight, was playing for the Bruins, and we're lucky enough to have Chris Kelly with us now. Chris, thanks for being here on London Live. First off, how do you get through a day like that? Um, you know what, when I think back, the, the, the one thing I do remember, uh, was trying to choke down food. That was the hardest part about the, the whole day. Um, out in Vancouver was, uh, we always start at five o'clock cause it's West coast time. So, uh, you're trying to figure out, you know, do I eat just one big meal? Do I eat two, two, you know, smaller meals, you know, kind of prepare like it's a seven o'clock game. So the whole series, I, I done, the. Uh, the two meal system. And I remember, you know, breakfast went down. Okay. But trying to choke down chicken, uh, shortly after that was, was difficult, harder than, than any other game. So that was the one thing that, that sticks out to me. It was, you know, kind of a, kind of a blur that, uh, that whole day. I remember, um, I was saying this to someone not long ago, we had kind of changed things up. Uh, we'd always practiced in Boston and then flown, um, and then got to the, the hotel, but, uh, Claude decided, you know what, we're, we haven't had the success we'd hoped for out in Vancouver. So let's change things up. We'll, we'll fly early in the morning. And when we get there, we'll, we'll land and then we'll go practice. And 
they wouldn't let us, Vancouver, rightfully so, would not let us on a minute earlier than, than we were allowed to be. Uh, the lights were actually turned off, and then as soon as it hit a certain time we could get on the ice, uh, we uh, they turned the lights on. And, uh, you know, that practice was great. It was exactly what we needed. You know, it was a loose practice. We went out, had some fun. We enjoyed it because it was the last practice uh, of the season. And uh, the next day, um, we, were, we were ready to go. And I think that that practice really, really helped us, you know, get uh, get some of the nerves out. Falling asleep the night before you know. I mean, everybody envisions going back to when you were a kid and pretending to score a Stanley Cup championship goal. What do you do to fall asleep? Or are you a guy who can just do it? Uh, sleeping never really been a, a problem for me. Maybe you know it took a little bit more time, but uh, I don't think I don't remember being up uh, all night. I think uh, you know I slept slept pretty sound. It was uh, it wasn't too too bad. Once you get to the rink and you start going through the pregame routines and the stretches and the warm ups and all of that, how different does it feel? It, you know what I think you know hockey players are so regimented, so routine that you, you kind of just fall into that, you know, that pattern where, you know, you tape your stick at a certain time, you stretch at a certain time, you do your warm up. you know, you just go through, you know, every meetings, you just go through that routine. You try to keep everything as normal as possible. Uh, you know, you'd be lying to, to everyone if in, in the back of your mind you're not thinking, oh, what will I do with the cup when I get it my day? Or, you know, that like those things creep in and you're trying not to let them creep in because um, it could be, you know, I was, you know, on in Ottawa um, in 07 and, and we lost and, you know, it could be, and we lost in game five. I could only imagine losing in game seven. You're so, so close and, uh, you know, you're starting to think, oh, what would I do with the cup? And that could never happen. So you try to get that, you know, those thoughts quickly out of your mind, but they do creep in. When you look back to the start of the game, you're standing for the anthem. Does it hit you then, hey, this is game seven, or do you find everybody's energy around you is just let's go and get this done? What's that moment like? Um, I think we, we had such a, you know, a good group and a focused group and, we like to do things the hard way. Uh, it, it never seemed to be the easy way for for that group. So we were all pretty dialed in and pretty focused. And um, I think when uh, Bergeron scored uh, uh, the first goal, you know, it gave us a, a pretty good boost moving forward. And uh, I think if I remember, we went into uh, went into the the locker room after the first period up by one. So. You know, we, we felt pretty good about ourselves, but, you know, we were playing Vancouver, who was, you know, on paper a much, you know, much better team. Um, but, you know, we went, we went into the second, you know, feeling pretty good about ourselves. Well, he had a one nothing lead, and then Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron score. Again, that shorthanded goal by Patrice Bergeron made it 3 nothing. When that goes in, a 3 nothing lead, especially in 2011, in a Stanley Cup final, how do you then play the third period knowing that, okay, all we have to do is hang on? Well, <laughs> um, well, back to, to, to Bergie's that shorthanded goal, I remember thinking because was, he was tripped and he, I wasn't sure if the goal was going to count because the way he went in, it went off 
it looked that originally looked like it went off his hand, but uh, replay showed it went off his stick. So you're you're kind of praying that this goal counts because this is a big goal. But um, you know you're you're expecting maybe not to. But when he when he did score, like you said, you're going into the third period. Um, at I uh, there was only one time that uh, well, eventually when I said, oh, we we might have a chance to win this is when Marchand scored the fourth goal with four minutes left, the empty net goal. Um, then you kind of sell in like, oh, maybe we do have a chance. But until then, they were so good. Uh, like I thought, oh, they can come back at any time here. And this is going to look really, really bad. We're up by three goals and we lose this in game seven and blow it. So uh, you never let your guard down for one minute. Chris Kelly joining us. Stanley Cup champion in 2011, the last time this went to a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final. You guys had to win Game 6. It's a lot like what St. Louis, or it's a lot like what Boston has had to do this year, except you went on the road and, and they've been able to come home. But the last few seconds of the game, where were you? What were you looking at? What do you remember? Well, I, uh, I was on the bench and. uh they, I remember watching, you know, in particular Mark Recchi because everyone knew it was his last game, and uh, you know, Claude made sure Rex is out there the last minute um, uh, to, to, you know, for him to be on the ice. And I remember just counting it down, and you know, I, I think it's a, a surreal feeling. You you work so hard, and you, you always dream about winning the Stanley Cup, but it, it's a difficult thing to win. So many things need to go right for you you know you need luck you need health you need the bounces you need your team playing their their best hockey and uh we had all those and you know it was just a great feeling you know going to the to timmy there after uh after that buzzer went and, you know knowing that yeah you, you actually won the last game of the year and then after that first celebration, the Stanley Cup is brought out. This becomes a ceremony. It comes out onto the ice. You get to watch that happen. Yeah. Well, well you see it come out, and you know, uh, Gary Batman's got it. And really, the only thing I remember is Big Z grabbing that cup, and his hat fell off, and it just looked like uh, he was – it was pure joy to see in his face and, and how hard, you know, he had worked to, to get, you know, to that point, you know, captaining the Boston Bruins and winning the Stanley cup. And it, it you know, the, the cups, it's a big thing and it looked tiny in his hands to be honest. Uh, so, you know, it was just uh, obviously a great, great moment to see it come out and then to see big Z, uh, you know, lifted above his head. And then, of course, Mark Recchi gets to hold it. Tim Thomas gets to hold it. And then the procession really begins. How big did it seem in your hands when you got it? Um, you know, it, uh, they say it's 35 pounds, but it just it feels so light, I think. Uh, you know, just getting that opportunity to put it above your head and, you know, get it from, from a teammate and pass it to a teammate. It's, just, it's such a, you know, a cool tradition that uh, it's truly... You know, you see the the great things about our game, the traditions of, you know, the respect factor, how it starts with the captain and, and moves its way down from the alternates to, you know, the the longest serving guys in the in the league to right down to, to the rookies and everyone, you know, gets their chance with it. And it's just, it's such a, a great thing about hockey and, uh, you know, our tradition. Um and a respect factor. It's uh, it's honestly it's just a cool thing. 
Chris Kelly with us on London Live as we talk about winning the Stanley Cup, something that is going to happen for either the Boston Bruins or the St. Louis Blues tonight. You were in Vancouver. How do you organize a celebration? Do you guys go out in Vancouver? Do you get on the plane and fly back to Boston right away? How do you work that out? So this is this is a pretty funny story, actually. So we're out here, you know, all the families and things come out and uh, onto the ice, and you're celebrating, and then you go in the locker room, and uh, you're celebrating in there. And uh, at the time, our our travel guy was uh, Johnny Busick, uh, chief. He had, you know, he won in seventy one or uh, yeah, uh, seventy two, and you know he's a Hall of Famer, and, uh, so beloved in, in the you know the Boston organization. So he comes in and he says, "Listen, guys, we 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 got to wrap this up," and everyone kind of gives him a hard time. And he's like, no, no, really, uh, we're going to lose our police escort to uh, to the airport. They're riding outside. So um, we quickly had to stop the, the festivities, pack up uh, everything, shower up, jump on the bus, and head to the airport. And one of the guys kind of joked, it was it was honestly like we, we stole the cup from the city of Vancouver. We were rushed straight to the airport, jumped on the plane, and flew overnight before we know it, we're, we're landing the next morning in, in Boston. That's amazing. Now, do you have the Stanley Cup up top with you on the plane, or does it ride with the luggage? What happens there? Oh, oh no, no. That thing doesn't get too far from, from up top. It, uh, it's passed around, and that, that's also you know such a neat thing because it's finally a point in the year where everyone can relax, you know, from, from management to coaching staff to – to, to front office staff, to, to the players, trainers, everyone can kind of just enjoy themselves because it is such a, a long, you know, season and you know so much work's been put into it by everyone. Um, so it's finally, you know, we you can enjoy you know something and uh, it, it's pretty neat up top. Well, that is phenomenal, Chris. Can't thank you enough for reminiscing about winning the Stanley Cup. Do you think much about it now? Or- Oh, for sure. It's it's funny because I hadn't really missed the game uh, this year, you know, being involved uh, in the development side and uh, with Ottawa and coaching. Uh, you know, my mind was, was, was busy. I was still around the game, but it's funny. As soon as the playoffs hit, you, 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 you're, you do miss it. And, you know, to see these guys playing a game seven, you know, win or lose, it's such a great opportunity. And I think I'm sure that's how both sides are approaching this. This is something you get to tell your kids that you got to play in a, in a game seven, uh, you know, winner takes off for the Stanley cup. It, it doesn't get better than that. Chris, thanks. Ah, uh, no problem. Chris Kelly, Stanley Cup champion in 2011 with the Boston Bruins, who had to very quickly leave Vancouver. He's now a player development coach with the Ottawa Senators. We will let you know what is coming up next on London Live when we return. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. While there are quite a few Blues connections, St. Louis Blues connections, to this area, to this city, to the London Knights, I'm willing to bet there are more Bruins fans. Willing to bet. Here's one of the biggest that we know on London Live. Bob, you all set for Game 7? You rested up? Rested up. Got Yep, got a good rest last night. Eating a couple meals there, like Chris says. You know, <laughs> a couple small meals for the game. 
maybe got a few brews. I got my cotton-filled pucks that I throw at the TV rather than real ones when I get a little upset. Hopefully I don't have to use those tonight very often. Uh, yeah, that was a great interview by Chris. I thought he was one of the best players, a real, you know, a real uh, intense player. But, man, that guy was a leader, too. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he sure was. Great to hear from him. Uh, yeah, you know what? Here's an interesting stat. Um, and hopefully the Bruins can change this tonight. They've never won the Stanley Cup on home ice. Come on. No, and six cups they've never won at home. So maybe uh, hopefully that curse can leave. Uh, <laughs> you know what? That's, I had not heard that, but you think back over it, even the famous Bobby Orgel, that was game four in St. Louis. Yeah, I mean... They've never won it on home. Well, Bob, I hope you are cheering at the end of tonight for your sake because you've been a great Bruins supporter for a long, long time. Enjoy the game. Yeah, you too, Mike. It's uh, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a good one. I think uh, yeah, first goal is crucial, right? Like I think getting that first goal, like uh, last game, that's and I just one thing about the Bruins, man. I hope in the last couple of days because they got me nervous and they have been getting me nervous <laughs> over the last. If they just hopefully worked on getting that puck out of their zone. Uh, in one, maybe two attempts instead of five or six. <laughs> Both <laughs> you know, teams are like, open for that. Yeah, well, my nails are gone in one hand. <laughs> Keep them for the other one. Hopefully you won't need them too much. Bob, have a great night. Uh, you too, Mike. <laughs> Bye-bye. Never won on home ice. I didn't realize that till right now. 12-4 and four is the record for home teams in a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final. We'll spew some more stats in about an hour from now. Next up, we have news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have a very special guest sitting just outside the studio who is going to come in and join us in a moment. And he's going to be able to tell a story that only people who have lived in this area can maybe truly appreciate. That's coming up. We are also going to be talking about Canada reaching for the stars in a whole new way. We're going to be looking at something that has taken place, something that has actually blasted off from Canada and, well, involving Canada, let's say. We'll do that in about a half hour from now because, as you know, Canada's got, uh, well, some some space contributions that we can be really proud of from Commander Chris Hadfield to Mark Garneau, to the Canada arm, we can go on and on. But we've got something else that has just gone up, a Radarsat Constellation launch. And we're going to talk about why that is, number one, important for Canada, and number two, just important, period. What is this thing actually doing? So that's still coming up. Plus, I want to talk about behavior in sports. Yesterday... We discussed a a little bit about the behavior of Toronto Raptors fans, and it wasn't all of them, it wasn't even many of them, but it was enough, enough to give a bad look when they cheered and some waved, morons, when Kevin Durant went down with an injury for Golden State in Game 5 of the NBA Finals, and you have to realize there are fans who are just there so that they can post on Instagram that they're a Raptors fan. When the Raptors start losing, and it will happen, maybe not for five years, it'll happen again. Every team goes through that. Those fans will not be there because it won't be doing anything for them. They're not fans. 
They're just being a part of this. They're just it's it's not about cheering for a team. It's that's they're just a part of this. They will be gone. Guaranteed. And actually, I had a great conversation with Jess, who works here at Chorus Radio London, yesterday after the show. And she said, you know, I, I wonder about all of the people who were doing the same thing, posting pictures and talking on and on about the Toronto Blue Jays just a couple of years ago. wonder where a lot of those people have gone. Because that's exactly right. And this happens everywhere. People jump on the old bandwagon and they sit back and they try and make themselves look big to their friends. I don't know what it is. That's not how I make use of sports. So I have no idea why there is an appeal for that. Oh, look, I'm a big Raptors fan. I bought a jersey. Okay, well, do you remember what happened five years ago? Do you remember what happened when the team was first brought here? No, I have no idea. But I'm a big Raptors fan right now. I'm with them. Win or... And that's the way it goes. No, you got to be with them, win or lose. You got to ride the roller coaster. That's that's the fun of it all. So we'll talk more about that before the show is out today. Our next guest is here, is in studio. So all of that is still ahead on London Live. All right. Well, as we described, we have an incredibly special guest with us, someone who is going to be performing at Budweiser Gardens for the next few days, but someone who doesn't just perform at Budweiser Gardens, performs around the world, but now, when he comes back home, London, Ontario, is that home. Please welcome Alex Hayes of Cirque du Soleil. Alex, how are things? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Can you describe for us what you are wearing right now? Because if you think Alex is decked out in a tuxedo, well, (laughs) that wouldn't be correct. If you think he's got jeans and a t-shirt on... No, no jeans and t-shirt. What are you wearing? <laughs> I'm wearing my costume for the show. And I'm, I'm a clown. I'm one of the clowns of the show. I'm a drummer, a musician, and one of the clowns. So right now, I'm in front of you dressing as a clown. And it is a fantastic costume. Thank you. Is this one that you put on, what would you say, few times a week, just when you perform, what would it be? When I perform, so I perform a lot of during the week, so almost every day. How long does it take? Because Alex has full makeup on yeah. and has a, uh, has a hat, has mm-hmm. a, a, do we call it a clown suit? I've, Cirque du Soleil doesn't seem to. You can call to, it like that, no problem. It seems uh, to be different that, for than a clown this show, For yeah. this show, yeah. This, because it's a pretty impressive costume. How long does Thank it take? You. To put the makeup is like about one hour, depending the day. <laughs> but at the beginning, when I was learning about this makeup, I, I used to spend like one hour and 40 minutes. Wow. And, but now, one hour is my record. <laughs> and, uh, and the costume is fast. The costume is like 10 minutes, I'm ready. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. And then you are off to do the show. Alex has brought his drum, so we're going to hear from Alex on the drum a little while later. Cirque du Soleil Mm -hmm. is in town. You can find information at CirqueDuSoleil.com. There are some tickets available tomorrow to Sunday. And if you haven't seen a Cirque show, then... I can't even describe it for you. You have to see this in person in order to appreciate everything that goes on. It is tremendous. Alex, you have an incredible story. Can you take us back in time? How many years would it now be? 
I've been first time here in London in 2012. Okay. With another show called Dralion. I've been at the same arena and I was in love with the town at that point. So, But you weren't living here. Not, Where were you living? Not at that point. At that point, I was living in my original country is Brazil. I, come for, I came from Brazil. So I was living in Brazil and me and my wife had this, uh, this um, we were thinking and this uh, dream to, to live in Canada because I love Canada. In general terms, I love Canada. And we were choosing a place. So with Calm, because with the first arena tour that I did with Dralion, we played in more than 100 cities in North America. So you have done some sightseeing of cities. You know exactly. what cities are great, what cities are not. You travel the exactly. world. Exactly, yes. So you yes. decided we're going to move somewhere that is yes. not Brazil. Mm -hmm. Family reasons? Yes, family reasons. I have three kids. I, I'm, a, I'm a married guy. For 22 years now. Hey, congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. And this was a thing that attracts me to the town. It's a family town. It's a town that has a lot of green. First time, first time I saw a, a place with a lot of, you know, trees and green everywhere. I came from Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a huge city, but it's gray. <laughs> and uh, and I, I love nature. I love nature. You know, quality of life, friendly people. This, this group of, you know, uh, qualities attract us to the city. We're talking with Alex Reyes from Cirque du Soleil. Cirque is in town, but Alex is now in town to stay. As we tell you the story that got him from Brazil in Sao Paulo. And you had your, your pick of the world because traveling yes. the world, you could choose to live anywhere. So you narrowed mm -hmm. it down to Canada. Yes. And then you had seen a number of cities in Canada. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the green in London. How did you end up making the decision? Did you narrow it down to, okay, we'll live in Ontario? Did you narrow it down to a part of Ontario? How did that go? Yeah, first time was, yes, we are going to live in Ontario. And which city? Then I chose the best cities. And we, we were talking a lot, me and my wife. And, uh, of course, she has a, a great, great uh, weight in this de decision. And, uh, yes, uh, London was the first choice ever. You know, we, were, we did a, a graphic, okay, cost of living, people, um, opportunities for the kids, especially for the kids. We want to raise the kids in a very safe place in a very calm place. And I, my, my kids are artists as well. So um, they are now in the school. My oldest is going to the college. Can I say the, the name of the college? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He, my, my oldest is in the Fenshaw College right now. He's going to study fine arts. And my, my, old, my second and my third, they are in the circus thing as well. So they like to, you know, they, they are doing circus classes for more, almost 10 years. So, um, yes, um, we were choosing a place to raise our kids with calm and, um, you know, to be happy and to be friend of everybody. So, so with this graph, mm -hmm. the, the pros and cons list, sometimes yes. you call it, you have all of these lists of things. Uh -huh. You mentioned the green. Yes. What was it that swung it for everybody else in the family to say, it's going to be London? 
Ah, it's something. I, I took a lot of pictures first time I was here. I took a lot of pictures. And, um, you know, today you can go to Internet as well. And we this multiculturality and, and these um, open arms to, to for the people that want to live in this kind of way, you know, family people uh, attract us a lot, attract us a lot. So, yeah, I, I practice uh, Tai Chi Chuan. My wife practices yoga. And we have a very, like, a natural way to, of living, you know. And we were looking for a place like that. It was, was very natural for us. London attracted us since the beginning. Alex Reyes joining us. Moving from Brazil, having the world to choose from, and brings his family to London, Ontario, and now part of Corteo, Cirque du Soleil, in town, starting tomorrow. Remember, you can visit CirqueDuSoleil.com for ticket information, information on the show. Show will run tomorrow until Sunday. So moving from, let's say, Exeter to London can be a bit of a hassle. Uh, moving from Brazil to London, what was that like? <laughs> Well, it, was a, it, it is a great adventure for us. You know, new culture, uh, new way of life, learning. M- more for my, my family than for me because I'm, I'm on tour for a long time. So I, I'm used to the, the snow, to the cold. <laughs> and uh, for them, everything is, is, is new. Everything is a new adventure. And they are really enjoying. They are very happy and they adapt themselves very very fast it's incredible you mentioned the snow yes I mentioned snow is snow. always exciting the first time you see it i mean <laughs> if you've come from a country that doesn't get a lot of snow the first time that's amazing by the second or third month of snow <laughs> were they still enjoying it yes yes especially my dog <laughs> <laughs> That's Alex Reyes, who's here with us in studio uh, from Cirque du Soleil in full makeup. We haven't even heard the drum yet, but Alex, we'll change that. We'll take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about how you got into Cirque du Soleil and what it's like to perform as a part of Cirque. That's next as London Live continues. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. In studio with us is Alex Reyes who is a part of Cirque du Soleil. He is a drummer. He is a clown in the production. Corteo is opening tomorrow at Budweiser Gardens. And you can go to CirqueDuSoleil.com for more information, for ticket information. If you've never seen a Cirque show, it is something to behold. And Alex has promised to play something on his drum in just a little while. But Alex, if you missed it, and Alex, I'll just recap things before we get into Cirque du Soleil itself. But if you missed it, Alex and his family were living in Brazil and decided, you know, they were going to pick out a place for the family to go to and live, hopefully, forever. And they could pick any place on the planet because, Alex, your job allows you to travel the entire world. So they selected Canada. And then they selected Ontario. And through, you should see Alex's smile, the graphs, uh, the table, the, the point form notes, they whittled it down to a few cities in southwestern Ontario, southern Ontario, and eventually to London, Ontario. And that 
is where they now live. It is an amazing story, Alex, but it's only part of your story. Let's get to the second part of your story, performing in Cirque du Soleil. Uh, how did you get to Cirque du Soleil? Wow, long story. I was in Brazil back in 2008. I'm a professional musician. So I was there playing with a lot of artists. I had my school, my, my music, drum school, percussion school, and I was playing with a lot of artists, a lot of groups, recording in big, big, great studios in Sao Paulo, traveling everywhere, but I, I was looking for challenges in my life. <laughs> and Cirque was a challenge for me. So I met this recruiter from Cirque du Soleil in 2008, he came to he went to brazil to to you know explain to everybody musicians and artists how is the company how is to work for cirque du soleil and i was in love uh, my kids was they, they were more um, fans of cirque before me oh really yeah when when i went to the the the, the meeting they said wow you you went to the <laughs> cirque du soleil meeting so wow that's great and then I was in love. I love everything, what he showed for us. And then I applied for Cirque in 2008. After two years and doing, you know, auditions, I did the whole process that everybody does. And after two years, they they invite me for the for Kidam. was another show, but I was in in Brazil working a lot, and I couldn't come. So my second invitation was for Dragon. Then I was free, and I was really, really excited to, to, to come to Cirque. Then I start my, my story in Cirque du Soleil in 2010. And just being able to go around and, and perform in such a high-energy show night after night, what is that like? It's pretty demanding. Yeah, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a normal. It, you know, as I said, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's not the same as a musician, it's not the same as playing with an artist, as a sideman or with a band. It's different. It's a completely different universe, because the music in the show is the envelope to, to you know, to give this emotion to the people, and everything that happens on the stage, we have to follow in the real time. So, every show is different for us. Really? Yes. That's so surprising yes, to hear. Yes, because the dynamic of the show is. Is very natural, so of course we have we have this um, 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 how do you say the the set mm -hmm. how is the show from the beginning to the end, but the variations and the varieties that can happen on the stage because we are human beings, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing for us as a, as a musicians because it's a great exercise every night to be a hundred percent, you know, alert. What is going on on the stage, and how we can do this thing the best way we can do, and to bring to the people the joy that they they deserve. You know, you are surrounded by people who are the best of the best at what they do. Yes. So talented. What is it like to have that energy around you and be part of that energy after night after night? It's very difficult to to. Uh, to explain this feeling, but I'm I'm amazed every night. <laughs> I'm amazed for the great musicians that we that I play together, and uh, about the whole you know the whole show. Every single uh, performer 
every single artist amazed me every night. So, wow, I, I have the best job in the world. <laughs> well, you have the best job in the world. You've shown to us that the city of London is right up there in terms of best cities to raise families. Alex, it's been great learning all about that and being able to meet you. Can you play us a little bit on the drums oh, yes, before we yes. before we close out? Yes, for sure. I, you know, I play during the show. I play in a drum set, and then the, it's a very big drum set, and with a lot of percuss, percussion uh, instruments. Oh, sorry. And uh, this is one of the drums that I use when I go to the stage. I go very often to the stage, and uh, this is a very old vintage drum and uh, my character as a clown drummer I'm one of the friends of the main character in the show and I used to go to the stage and to put fire you know <laughs> to, you know fire oh, in wow. the, in, fire in the know like a, a great energy and to to explore this uh, part of drums so this is a marching band drum set very old but is is quite nice Alex Hayes, here for Cirque du Soleil. Corteo opens at Budweiser Gardens. Tomorrow runs until Sunday. You can go to CirqueDuSoleil.com for more information. Alex, we wish you all the best. Keep enjoying London, Ontario. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody. Amazing stuff. Choosing London, Ontario above anywhere on the planet and tomorrow delighting London, Ontario and the rest of this area as Corteo from Cirque du Soleil gets underway. We're going to take a break. Up next, we are going to talk about something that has been blasted into space and the relevance that it has, the tie that it has to Canada. News is on the way with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL. We'll talk Canadian contributions to space. We've got another one in about five minutes from now. Did want to fix something courtesy of Bob. Remember Bob had called in, if you've been listening to the show for about the last 40 minutes, Bob called in and said that there is a stat. He's a big Boston Bruins fan. There is a stat that says the Bruins have never won a Stanley Cup on home ice. And then Bob called back and said, ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute. They've done it once. But it was all the way back in 1939. So he wanted to make sure that we fixed that. 1939, the Bruins beat the Maple Leafs 3-1 at Boston Garden. The night that Flash Hollett, everybody knows Flash. Does anybody know Flash Hollett? I don't remember Flash Hollett. Flash Hollett scored what was an insurance goal in the third period, very late in the third period, Boston won 3-1, and he actually scored it on a London Knight connection. Turk Broda, former head coach of the London Knights, happened to be in goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs at that moment. So Flash Hollett and the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup that year. There could be London connections all over the place in the form of billet families and friends and family Cheering tonight, depending what happens, because the St. Louis Blues want to run it down again. Okay, we'll run it down one more time. Tim Taylor, director of player development, former Knight. Mike Van Ryan, assistant coach with the St. Louis Blues, born and bred Londoner. 
You have Ryan O'Reilly, who is, he's claimed by Seaforth, Varna, and Clinton. We'll just call him Huron County. He's on the Blues, leads him in playoff scoring. And then former London Knights Robert Thomas, uh, also Michael Delzato, and Patrick Maroon could also win the Stanley Cup this evening. Or the son of Louis DeBrusque on the Boston Bruins side, another former Knight, Jake DeBrusque, could win the Stanley Cup. So we'll see what happens. Could be Boston's first win on home ice since 1939. That statistic is absolutely correct. Bob, thank you for the fix-up. We'll take a break and we'll talk space next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Canada has been a great contributor to space exploration for a long time. I mean, we belittle ourselves too much by thinking, oh, well, you know, the the big things in the world are for the other countries. We're just kind of the, the nice little polite country, except when Kevin Durant falls on the court. But we're not. We're involved in all kinds of things. We've been doing some horn tooting today. Thanks to Alex Reyes, who brought his family from Brazil, could have picked anywhere in the world, picked London to live. Out of anywhere in the world, we can do all kinds of horn tooting over how many Canadians will win the Stanley Cup tonight. We can do all of that stuff. But let's talk space, because just today, SpaceX happened to launch Radarsat Constellation. Okay, and I, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. So again, as we said off the start of the show with Gord Cudmore, London defense lawyer, when I'm not sure about something, I'd rather go to an expert to find out more. Joining us is Max King from the University of Toronto, where he deals each and every day with aerospace engineering. Max, it's great to have you back on London Live. How are things? It's going great, Mike. Great to talk to you. So, radar sat constellation, or just radar sat? How do I say this right? Yep. So you've got it right. So it's the radar sat constellation, and you might see that abbreviated as uh, uh, RSC sometimes, or the RCM, okay. radar sat constellation mission. So basically, it launched at, out of California this morning, about seven a.m. California time, and there are three satellites are in orbit right now. And they're going to be monitoring the Earth for the next seven years, collecting uh, Earth observation, mapping the surface with radar. That sounds fairly high tech. I mean, how different is it from what's been happening already? So this is the third generation of radar sat. So Canada built the first radar sat that was back in the 90s and radar sat 2 in the early 2000s and now this third generation the radar sat constellation. So basically this system allows us to have more coverage. It's three satellites that fly in a sort of formation. They know where each other are and using that information they can track ground targets much easier and much more accurately. If somebody goes to Google Maps, they think, oh, we we know everything there is to know about the planet. Look at this. Google Maps shows every street all over the place. What sorts of things do we still need more information about? So the Earth is not static. So the info you're seeing on Google is already out of date. <laughs> the coastlines are changing. The climate is changing. And with these satellites at their best, they can get three meters of resolution. So we can see in real time 
ice flows changing. We can notify ships that are going through northern spaces, through northern waterways. We can update crews that are bringing supplies to isolated northern communities that ice flows are thin or this ice flow doesn't exist anymore. You have to go a different route. So, wait a minute. You just said within three meters. These things are firing from space. They're zooming in from space, and they're getting to within three meters of resolution? So that's with uh, with all the bells and whistles working. That's the the best they can perform. On uh, on average, they won't be running that hard. They'll be having a broader resolution. But if need be, that's the resolution they can provide. Okay, I think all of us need to be wherever we are right now. If you're in your house, maybe don't try this if you're in your car. Pay attention. But I want you to kind of turn yourself around and find something that's about three meters away. Uh, Max, I'm finding a door, and I can see the door. I can see the pattern on the door. I can see a smudge on the handle of the door. I probably made the smudge, but it's on the door. I can, I can pick out things like that. So you're saying that that's the kind of that's the kind of visibility that they're going, and that's the kind of accuracy they're going to have. So uh, what it can see is it, you know, if you're in your car right now on the 401, standing still, the car that's three meters over from you in the next lane, that the radar sats could tell that those are two separate cars. Okay, still. that's what uh, that could see. It's um, pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at, at like you say, next generation kind of stuff. We're talking with Max King, master student in aerospace engineering at U of T, and we're talking about the radar sat constellation that was launched. That is going to now zoom around for how long is it going to zoom around for? It's going to be in orbit for seven years. Is the projected lifetime? So ideally, it could run longer. But uh, there's money in place, and the systems are designed such that it will for sure work for seven years. One thing that we need to talk about, Max, is this was not launched from Cape Canaveral. This was not launched by NASA. This was launched by SpaceX out of California. What does that mean in the grand scheme of things? So that's very exciting. So this is... uh, SpaceX is providing, and several other launch providers that are entering the commercial space market, are providing cheaper launches. So this launch for cost the Canadian taxpayer a little less, because we got SpaceX to launch it on a rocket that's already been launched before. It's a reuse of one that was used in March. And that saves Canada money, and that can save the United States money, and that can save any company in helping them get access to space. When we looked at kind of the start of that particular program, the the entering of, of kind of private money and, and private minds into space exploration, this is what they were talking about, right? Making it easier to do things in space. They're doing it. Yes. Yep. They're doing it, and they have been doing it. And they're going to keep doing it. <laughs> Max King with <laughs> us from Aerospace Engineering at U of T. So with this project going on and it being a Canadian-built project, a Canadian-owned and operated project, do people come to Canada for the info on all of this? Yes. So Canada can choose what it provides to the world. It can say, we want to provide this data free to or these information about the coastlines, free to all of these people, all of uh, ship captains, 
and other data it can reserve and it can choose to sell and to make back some of its investment into this technology. And it's going to be collecting data on coastlines and forestry, helping our wildlife, our environment, and our people for the next seven years, 24 hours a day. Wow. And isn't that interesting that you can develop a, a little bit of an industry in all of this, being able to sell some of that data, some of that information? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's great. We're talking with Max King, aerospace engineering at U of T, and we're talking about a Canadian-built, owned, and operated Radar Sat constellation that was launched this morning is now orbiting Earth. Was it still that nervous moment this morning? And if you go to my Twitter feed at Stubbs980, there is a link to the actual launch that Max has provided us with, so you can take a look at that. But is is it still as nervous as any any other launch that you see in in getting something off the ground? That well, I hope this goes okay. So there's still. There's still some people out there that I'm sure have got their fingers crossed. So it's just the first step. So they launched all three aboard one rocket, and then one by one, they separate from the rocket and sort of spread themselves out around the Earth. And then what they have to do, and they'll be doing that over the next, I believe, days or several days, they have to deploy out some of their structure to build these enormous radar antennas. And, that and each will be one done, of these things... That'll be done in space. That'll be done all in space. And so until people have confirmation of how that has deployed, I'm sure someone out there has got their fingers crossed. And all summer, all this coming summer, they'll be doing uh, sort of tests on the sa- spacecraft, making sure they're working right, making sure that they're seeing the Earth properly and that the data and everything is working properly. Ultimately, the goal is to get that data and start to use it in all kinds of ways. Do we know when that might happen? So I believe current estimates are for late summer, but uh, I'm not an expert on that. Well, Max, you're an expert on a lot of things, and we really appreciate all of the information you've given us about this. And and again, how Canada continues to put ourselves on the map. It's great stuff. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you very much, Mike. Have a good night. Bye-bye. That is Max King, master's student in aerospace engineering at U of T, talking about the Canadian-owned, built, operated Radarsat constellation that is now going to be able to start gathering data for seven years. And as Max said, it'll be up to them. If they want to make this free and accessible, they can do that. If you say, okay, well, you want that particular set of data? Yeah, okay. Well, this is the price. And then you recoup some of what you had to shell out in order to build this. So as much as space exploration is changing, there were thoughts almost 20 years ago that it would be getting better with private enterprise getting involved. And uh, maybe, just maybe, that's exactly what we're seeing. Well, we'll take a break. Up next, want to close out the show talking about sports behavior and not going on. I don't want to stress everything about Kevin Durant. This, this is a little bit, this is a little bit different, but I do want to go back to yesterday and team USA and Thailand, but just an overall thing that is happening with the behavior of people and how we should be viewing it. That's next. This is global news radio, 980 CFPL. Human behavior is always a fascinating thing. 
And we've seen a couple of things in the last two days that have come under great scrutiny and in too many ways have been blown out of proportion. Kevin Durant does not need the entire country of Canada to apologize to him. And anybody who's thinking up new ways to do that, stop doing that. There's no point. That's not what he's looking for. You're never going to take back the few seconds where the morons, especially the one with the beer and the wave, like to talk to that guy, um, where he they waved and they cheered that Kevin Durant had been hurt. That's someone who has no clue about much. That's someone who has no clue about how to behave or how the sports world works. And then yesterday, we had Team USA at the Women's World Cup of Soccer taking on Thailand. Team USA is ranked number one in the world. They're the defending World Cup champions. They are very, very good. They have a veteran roster. They are the favorite, if not one of the main favorites, to win this year. And they were playing Thailand. At half, it was 3-0 for Team USA. And then they came out and they scored a whole bunch of goals in, I think it was less than 10 minutes, scored four goals, and they were up 7-0. And you could just see... We were watching the match in the newsroom. You could just see Thailand start to slump. And then when Team USA scored the eighth goal, it was like Thailand could have said, all right, that's enough. We're done. You've won. We're out. And that's kind of how they started to play. And the United States went on from that 8 nothing lead to eventually make it 13 nothing. But they were still cheering when those final goals were being scored, and not just cheering, they were still celebrating. There was there was the count because one player had scored five goals, so counting the five goals, making a scene, doing celebrations, a grass snow angel on one of the goals. And they've come under a lot of scrutiny for that. And sports personship, or whatever we're supposed to call it, is certainly something that you need to stress. Uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to do it because celebrations have become a part of games. If you look at main video games that kids play, when you get a touchdown in Madden, you're choosing the celebration that you do. There have been FIFA games in the past where the first thing you did after you scored a goal was choose your celebration. I think FIFA 19 allows you to do that as well. So that is a part of the culture now, the part of the culture of sport. So it's a very difficult line to say, you know what, that's showing up your opponent and that's just you having fun because you scored a goal. In Team USA's part, you can make the defense that there's just there's celebration and that's what it is. But at the same time, what if Thailand was celebrating the way the U.S. was? What if Thailand was winning 10 nothing, 11 nothing, 12 to nothing? Uh, just got an email from Brian. Brian says, note on fan behavior, etc. One thing to consider is what I call the TML effect. I like this already. Essentially, Toronto Maple Leafs fans who are diehard fans regardless of win or lose. The problem with that is there's no incentive for the team to perform. Don't you think that a team should constantly be driving to win and be successful to win over the fans rather than have the fans be there regardless of their performance? Ah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, and so many times that happens. That that was what we were talking about with the Kevin Durant situation and the Fairweather fan. The same people 
who called themselves the biggest Blue Jays fans in the entire country just a couple of short years ago as they sat there and watched the Blue Jays battle away against the Texas Rangers are the same people that aren't even going right now. And when you look at Brian's point, that's incentive for the team to get better. Um, When you look at it from the fan perspective, you know, if you're going to be a fan, be a fan. As far as sportsmanship goes, I think that's the thing that is completely changing. And you have to look and say, okay, what is a harmless celebration and what is over the line? I still don't like the fact that National Hockey League players go down a line of high fives after they scored. What are you, five? What are you, six years old? That looks lame. Stop doing that. But it's something that has has happened. I don't know if the league asks them to do it, but that element of sports is changing. And it's going to be interesting to see whether we see celebrations kind of peel back a bit. I doubt we will. Or whether they just gain more acceptance. And that's probably where it will go. Where, you know what, even though they're up 13 nothing and they're celebrating, yeah, that's what you do after you score. You think up a creative celebration. And I'm pretty sure that's where we're headed. And for some of us who call ourselves old diehards, we're just going to have to get used to that. Thanks to Kelly Wong for her help today. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.